Hello there, you got it locked on to Dead Air. I'm Corey Daniels. For the program, we are going to be talking to Stuart Nixon. He is a co-author of Dead Base 50. Now, Dead Base is the go-to resource and reference for tapers, historians, archivists, and other serious students of the Grateful Dead. It's back on store shelves, and it's one of the few books that Dead.net carries that is not from a band member. And something trippy about Dead Base is when Phil Lesh and Bill Kreutzmann were writing their autobiography, they use Dead Base as a reference. It's been out of print for a while, so it's really cool to see it back on store shelves. It's When you get it in the mail, it's almost like you're getting a boat anchor in the mail because it's a thousand pages long. And so when I talked to Stuart Nixon, I asked him, you know, when did the ball get rolling for this project? And of course, it started with going to concerts. Sort of a religious experience to go to shows. So when we got to work on the recordings and the tapes and the data. We love doing it. Dead Base is basically your database when it comes to Grateful Dead shows and the set list. So when Stuart Nixon started collecting those set lists, it started to be like a hobby. It tapped in with the magic of the music, but it also uh, allowed us to form these longtime friendships with people. So there was interpersonal value. There was this uh, appreciation of the music. You would think that diving into the Grateful Dead this deep could actually be kind of lonely, but uh, Stuart Nixon said that uh, it was kind of the opposite. There was goes back to the Grateful Dead unity and the companionship and fellowship. When we connected with somebody else, it was a really good way of basing our friendship. That whenever we would get together, we would talk about the shows and talk about set lists that were recently uncovered. These talks about set lists would lead to other subjects around the discussion around the campfire. So how we stumbled upon a library microfilm uh, ad of a particular show, or how we were talking with a friend from another state who had been to a show that didn't have a particular band member on that particular day for some reason. The good old days before the internet. So before the World Wide Web, a lot of that information wasn't commonplace, but individuals knew these little tidbits and facts and shared it with other or a couple other deadheads and it would spread. It was like a germ infecting the population. It was a good germ. Uh, people were uh, happy to hear that information. But to get that information out, you couldn't tweet it, you couldn't Snapchat it. You actually had to use a pen and paper. Writing down the songs as they were being played and then sometimes some of us would like at the break even get on the phone and call other friends and let them know what the set list was. It was definitely a special position to carry on that message, be a conduit of information. So when the World Wide Web started being invented, the game started changing. At that point, there wasn't like mobile computing. There was server-based and people would have to you know, use modems to have their computer log into the different bulletin board systems like the well. The well was the Whole Earth Electronic Link. It was an online community founded in 1985. It was a blog before there were even blogs. And they even had a deadhead conference in the well. And it was one of the most articulate and lively deadhead neighborhoods in cyberspace. There was a number of people who would go to various shows and write down the set list, either the first set or the second set, you know, at the end of the show, and call into friends who would then get on the computer 
and post it to the well. There were uh, cases back then when there were hundreds of us logging in to see if somebody has posted the set list yet and what did they play. Um, especially if you weren't there on tour um, and weren't seeing a whole particular run of shows, you really wanted to know what you're missing. Once again, the Deadhead community stepped up to the plate. These folks that were serving the community by phoning it in and then their counterparts entering it in and then people right in real time saying, well, that must have been a really great you know, version of Dark Star or whatever. It made it, even in challenging situations, doable. There was definitely a lot of worker bees around the Grateful Dead hive. There was a lot more information, a lot bigger fan base, and a lot bigger need for a dead base. The actual compilation of Grateful Dead concerts on, their, on the set list were really underground. A number of different people were keeping lists. It was part of the culture, I think, besides keeping, uh, is list keeping. And they go back to the late 60s. A lot of people were keeping lists in the 70s, but it really took off in the 80s. So there was a number of people keeping them unofficially. One of those guys and a key player for Dead Bass was Mike Dolgolskin. Probably the largest keeper of the lists on the West Coast. And he um, actually shared his lists with others around the country. Mike is an all-star when it comes to Dead Bass. It's probably because he's got a couple superhero powers. One includes his memory. I will call him. I said, can you remember a such and such? And he generally remembers all the dates, all the venues, and most of the set lists. His other superpower was how he maintained his set list. Using a manual typewriter, of all things. And he would type his set list and then change and retype the page if there were corrections or additions to shows. So he was busy almost constantly typing the set list on the typewriter. That was sort of a collection of data waiting to be born. But to do that, the early draft of the database had to go to the other side of the coast and it also had to go into a computer. A copy got into John Scott's hands on the East Coast who put the initial version of the database into a computer. Once it was in the computer, it was one step closer to being published as a book. But before they did that, John Scott, he reached out to the band to make sure he wasn't stepping on any toes. So he reached out to Dennis McNally, who was the band's biographer and publicist. He told John, yes, this seems like a pretty good idea. You guys can move forward, but you have to work with these other guys who I know so you can do it right. And so it was Dennis that put together John and Mike and myself. The band was put together and they put all their notes together to make the superset. They had the updates that Mike had on his typewriter. They had the updates that John had in his computer. Stuart Nixon was in the scene, so he reached out to Dick Latvala. I had known Dick for a couple of years before he was the Grateful Dead's vault archivist. But then when he got that job and knew about our Headbase project, uh, he got on board as well. So we made even more updates and corrections to the initial dead base information in the vault. So that was a cool addition to our team. But it wasn't just the dream team that was on the court making points. From dead base, the first one in 87, all the way up to the current, the latest dead base, dead base 50, it's always been a Grateful Dead community effort. Over the years, we got so many updates 
and new information. Up to the last book, we had corrections given by lots and lots of deadheads out there. So it really is um, the database of the Grateful Dead, and it's the database of the community. That was the plus side. On the other hand, there was a negative side. You would have a lot of information going through a lot of minds of deadheads, and sometimes on the other end, that information was sometimes distorted unintentionally. It was sort of like the telephone game. That was one challenge of pulling all this together was to really do quality control because sometimes um, you'd be told about a particular concert and you'd look at it and it sort of looked plausible but the date may have been off or the venue name may have been off but had the city right. So a lot of times we had to double and triple check new information. And sometimes we rejected it, frankly. We, we knew that a certain concert couldn't have been on a certain day um, because there was some place else in the country the day before or on that day or um, that a song was just not in that time frame. Uh, that, that was only played, that started to be played two years later. Sometimes it really didn't even matter what kind of microscope they used. It could have just been an honest mistake like a typo instead of 72. Maybe it was really 74. We ran into many cases that uh, gave us pause. We had to do some research. Actually, sometimes we even corrected ourselves when new information came in. We wanted to be honest about that, have that up front. And it was actually helpful for people when you know, we had clarified that a particular show was done on a different date and the tape that was circulating was wrong. Um, we had a, a section in the front of most of the books, including Dead Base 50, the 19th edition, where we would say these were problem shows or corrected set lists. And so right up front, we were thinking of this couldn't have happened on this date, so this is the date that we are assigning to be the correct date for this show. And oh, but this set list was wrong. These four songs on a particular show were actually from a tape from a different show, and someone just put those two together on one tape. So we're deleting these four songs, but the rest of the set list is correct from that day. Sort of like going for your PhD at the Grateful Dead University. The boys, however, did suffer through some side effects of cramming for the finals. They all sort of blur together now because it was minutiae. I mean, we really had to sharpen our pencil and get really detailed. Now, before we get any farther, let's play everybody's favorite game and take a step back. Let's take a couple steps back and first think, how many hours did these boys dedicate to this project? Thousands, truly, yes. You're absolutely right, but, but it was a labor of love. The families had to sacrifice, so in all the books, we thank our significant others and families for granting us the freedom to be this compulsive. But it all came around. We were forgiven and encouraged, but it was no small effort. As we take another step back, let's think about, is this information really all that important? I think some people would probably say, hey, that's way too detail-oriented or way too anal, but that was the nature of the beast. We needed to get it right. So we got into that level of detail. Sometimes we were sort of nervous about just being too extreme about that. Now that we've moved back a couple of steps, let's take our breath and let's check in with the authority. Uh, my name is Jerry Garcia. I play banjo on the old-timey songs 
and guitar on the bluegrass songs and do a lot of lead singing too, which I'm not proud of. <laughs> One time I had an uh, opportunity to talk to Jerry Garcia backstage and I'm sort of half apologized saying, I hope you don't uh, think that we're too detail-oriented and anal about it. Um, I know you've seen the book. And he said, oh yeah, I've seen it, but you know, I don't look at it because I was there. <laughs> so I, I, I chuckled and he said, but in terms of being that detail-oriented, um, that's fine because you know, you're, you're following good tradition because when I was your age, I used to love following bluegrass bands. And I would have my pad and paper pen and out, and I would write down every song, and I would note um, whether they went from one song to another, or whether they took a break, or um, somebody you know went on, picked up a different instrument. So I was very, very detail-oriented also. So you're just uh, following in my footsteps. Uh, you're doing that for our band, so. Uh, keep up the good work. So that, that was a, sort of a pretty cool uh, experience and to get that uh, feedback and that support. This is Dead Air. I'm Corey Daniels. This week we are talking with Stuart Nixon. He is the co-author of Dead Base. I love this quote from Nicholas Merriweather that you can find in the foreword. He says that in the early days of Haight-Ashbury, the dead used to say that every place that they play is church. So if dead shows were religious services, then Dead Base is the Bible. It's a detailed performing history of the band. You're going to get a lot more than just a, a record of what went on. You're going to get part dictionary, part encyclopedia, and part statistical analysis. There was a lot of work, a lot of effort that was put into this project. And Stuart Nixon talks about putting the Grateful Dead in this sort of spotlight and with this type of microscope, that it really isn't that unusual when you look at music as a whole. It goes back to the nature of music as a way of getting through our senses and getting into our souls. There's definitely a lot to get into with Dead Base 50. It clocks in at about a thousand pages. You can get a copy over at dead.net. That's the Grateful Dead's official website. And you can also get it on amazon.com. Once you get the book, dive in. The book isn't just straight facts in terms of the song names and the order. And we would often add like who's the opening band or who jammed with them on certain songs or what the anniversary was, or how many shows since the last time that song was played. The book is hardcover and weighs about six pounds. The price tag is about $90, but Nixon cautions buyers that he's not getting rich or nobody a part of the Dead Base Project is getting rich off of this project, just like any other books that they've published for Dead Base. In fact, some of the proceeds help out the Rex Foundation. And when it comes to the Grateful Dead, they've received countless requests for help from community organizations and became known for their generosity and their numerous benefit concerts. So in the fall of 83, members of the band, they started out the Rex Foundation. They named it after Rex Jackson, Grateful Dead roadie, later road manager up until his death in 76. But the Rex Foundation is a nonprofit charitable organization that allows the band to proactively support the arts, sciences, and education. So buying a dead base goes to a good cause. We thought it was a cool thing to do. You know, it, it actually got us even more connected with more aspects of the Grateful Dead, not just their musical aspect, but their community outreach and their support of all these great causes. So we were very happy and honored to 
um, be asked to do that. And so even one thing we ins- I insisted on doing for Dead Base 50 was to give to Rex as well. So we do that even now. And once you get to Dead Base, you got every piece of information that you could possibly need or want. The data is like 95% complete now. And maybe over a couple of years, it might get to be 95.1%. Nixon estimates that there's probably about 100 shows that they'll never find the set list for. And then there's probably about a dozen shows where those shows just aren't known. We don't even know it was a show. We don't even have a date or a venue or anything. Probably these, these ones that they did on the side or a really small venue that uh, never made it into any newspaper or anything. There's a real good chance that this Dead Base 50 is going to be the final Dead Base. Now, if anything else comes out, it would probably be putting out a small supplement with updates and additions that would either be free or at a minimal charge. One thing that Stuart Nixon has learned by working on Dead Base is that nothing can ever be complete. They never even thought about getting to a Dead Base 50. Uh, When they came out with the first one in 87, they thought foolishly that it was going to be complete and end of story. We thought we were going to get it all right on Dead Base, put out everything that we knew at the time, and then just add each year's new stuff, which we did. We, we had a Dead Base 88 book and then a Dead Base 89 book, which just had the new stuff. But even just within that first year or so, we discovered there was more information coming. So that's why we did Dead Base 2 and Dead Base 3. As a matter of fact, it was sort of those two levels. There was the new stuff for just that year, and there's the corrections and additions to the old stuff that sort of forced us to do two books every year. So there was Dead Base 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and so forth, up to 11, and at the same time there was Dead Base 88, 89, 90, up to 94. It goes without saying that the music of the Grateful Dead changed people. And with that fan base and then the addition of Dead Bass, it was sort of an opportunity where fans were able to change the band, or at least change their perception or perspective on the band, including the songs, going to a concert, having that experience, like uh, the jams. Sometimes you would refer to it as a jam. But then there was also drums, and then drums in space. And is it drums, or is it drums with an S, or drums with a Z? Regardless, this type of communication, these kinds of talks, were part of the language of the Grateful Dead community. Perhaps the most memorable or or notable was the jam out of Terrapin Station. And we would often give that an abbreviation, because a lot of times when you're doing set lists on the fly at a show, you abbreviate. You know, there was like Promised Land was P-Land, and um, estimated was just EST. So this jam out of Terrapin was called Jute, J-O-O-T. So many times you'd see people set lists with Jute, but then you'd many times hear or see an online conversation going about Jute. And um, it was one of the most intricate and... Um, interesting jams of that nature. Every once in a while, we would, if it's clearly something like that, we would make comments. The book uh, isn't just 
straight facts in terms of um, the song names and the order and the greater than sign. But then there was a comment in this particular case who would say, uh, Jute followed um, Therapy. I'm Corey Daniels, and this week we've been talking with Stuart Nixon, co-author of Dead Base. It's back on store shelves. You can get uh, more information by visiting their website, deadbase50.net. The uh, 50 is the numbers, deadbase50.net. you got a brand new discography. They've got new photos, essays, analysis, updates to Dead Base, Garcia Base, Weir Base, Phil Base. Uh, They even threw in some set lists from the other ones, The Dead, further uh, the 50th anniversary shows a lot of good stuff from Stu Nixon Mike Dolgolskin and John W. Scott this week we have been talking with Stuart Nixon really would like to thank him for taking the time and not only talking but also educating me on the world of Grateful Dead I just feel really lucky to have been in the right place at the right time and um, had the background had the database background to have a contribution that that was a value to the to the project. I have to say though that back in our original trio of authors, John Scott was actually the uh, database guy. He had the the data, as I said, on his computer server, and he did all the slicing and dicing and all those tables. Mike was the original archivist, if you will, of the set list, and he would always be the person we'd go to when we had the new. He he made the call whether or not to keep or not keep any change or new data. He was sort of the the raw data authority. Again, being blessed, I was sort of the middle ground. I was the liaison, basically, of the book project to the band. So I'd go to the vault with Dick, or I'd go to the office with Eileen Law and get the newspaper clippings or talk to the band members or uh, crew members, uh, deliver the free copies and that sort of thing. All three of us were lucky to be in the right place at the right time and do this project, which would have happened probably in some way, shape, or form. But I was the luckiest of the three because I was able to go to a lot of shows, get backstage passes, talk to band and crew, and just be a part of it. As we were about ready to close down the interview, I'd always heard this story about Stuart Nixon that he had went to every single Grateful Dead show in the year 1985. I wanted to ask him about that, but more importantly, I wanted to ask him how he was able to go to all of those shows and still maintain a full-time job. Stuart Nixon explains. The string actually started in the middle of 84. I went to the middle of 86, so I had 101 in a row, and the all of them in 1985. And at that time, I had just uh, joined an up-and-coming biopharmaceutical company called Genentech, but they were still small, struggling, and they didn't have the infrastructure, uh, the staffing, to really support them. They hired me back in 81 to manage um, the programming and database teams. I was trying to hire uh, the team locally from San Francisco, and there were not at that time that many pharmaceutical or biotech companies. It is one of the hubs nowadays, thanks to Genentech's success. But most of the talent was back on the East Coast. And in like 83, 84, we'd fly people out 
and interview them and put them up for a night or two in San Francisco and got to be an expensive proposition because um, they really needed to interview like 10 people to pick one good one. I was seeing a lot of shows in the early 80s and was taking a lot of vacation time to get on the tour. And I had the idea of the big upcoming East Coast tour to go on tour and set up uh, sort of an interview environment at hotels where I was staying. And so I would go for three nights in Boston, followed by three or four nights in New York, and then three or four nights in Philly, and see the shows at Boston Garden and Madison Square Garden and the Spectrum at night, having interviewed three or four people during the day on each of those days. And the company you know, paid my hotel bills, paid my airfare out, and between all those cities, completely convinced that uh, that was the best way of interviewing candidates and hiring people, which it was. But I didn't tell them, of course, that at night I would step out and go to a dead show um, for most of those. No one ever, there was not a lot of deadheads in the management that was comparing tours and saying, hey, Stu's not here. Where's Stu these days? Oh, he's interviewing back, you know, in New York. And, oh, well, that just happens to be when they're doing the Madison Square Garden run. So, um, yeah, I, I kept that actually private for many years while I was still working for Genentech. Um, but I retired two years ago. So now the truth can come out. I'm Corey Daniels. You've been listening to Dead.